Two weeks ago, we were looking at the importance of the virgin birth, and usually Sunday night, I reserve it more for teaching than preaching, I guess, not that I'm much different either way, but we were looking in more detail about the reality of the virgin birth, and then um, we went down through different things, And, and I said to you that this whole doctrine that is built on the virgin birth, which is really what we call the hypostatic union, Um, And I think Norm uh, brought that word out, and that's a theological term that means, uh, it comes from a Greek word, hypostasis, which means uh, substance or or unity in that way. And it's the idea in Christian theology that um, the divine God and the human part of God as well, in this case, uh, uh, Jesus, as as Jesus Uh, the body, as we would call the fleshly part, the human side of Jesus, uh, are in one unity, and that is called the hypostatic union. In other words, Jesus was fully God and fully man, uh, unique in the fact that no other person can make that claim, just Jesus. And that is uh, really a basis of our uh, belief in that we needed a Savior who would somehow be human right and he would have uh, the same kind of blood that flows through our veins and would come out of our race of people the human race and yet would not be touched with the sin that is in our race and all of us are in a long line of sinners from adam it goes right back and we needed as the book of romans talks about the second adam someone who would come and would be fully human but yet without sin And so the virgin birth, often as it's called, really it's the virgin conception, that God would prepare a body in the virgin's womb, and there wouldn't be an earthly father involved. That's different, right? It's never been something like that, and never will be again. But it is something that is um, needed, because otherwise you would just have another sinner, whether he was a moral person as someone might say or better than most uh, he would still just be another sinner and he wouldn't be able to save us from our sins and as we looked at this morning in this morning's message from matthew 121 says and she shall bring forth a son and you shall call his name jesus for he shall save his people from their sins and i am one of those that he reached when i was 18 and i am so thankful for that as well well we looked at that the importance of the virgin birth and i'm just going to point out again on the outline um, we looked at the reality of the virgin birth birth out of here galatians chapter 4 and then tonight we're going to look at the results of the virgin birth or at least start that and this is dealing with the humanity and the divinity of christ okay i don't think i'm going to get to the second part of that which is the divinity part tonight but look at it the human human nature of christ and we're going to pick up reading in galatians chapter 4 and in verse 1 paul writes now i say that the heir as long as he's a child does not differ at all from a slave though he is master of all but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father even so when we were children we were in bondage under the elements of the world so what paul's teaching original sin And we're under bondage in that original state. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. 
And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. But then, indeed, when you did not know God, you served those gods which by nature are not gods. And let's just pray. Lord, we open up your word once again tonight. We always ask you to open it to our hearts and minds and teach us as only you can and and help us to be obedient to your word and to you, O Lord. Thank you for the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you for this truth that we're looking at tonight. And again, Lord, help us to understand these things and interpret them correctly and and just uh, teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we looked at this outline. This would be that section that we're in. Um, We're going to look at tonight the results of the virgin birth and uh, cover that. And in particular, I'm going to start here in verse 4 of Galatians 4, where uh, the phrase, and last time we looked at God sent forth his son. That's the reality of what God orchestrated. The plan began with him. And he was born of a woman. That's that virgin conception. And we looked at some of the history surrounding that in the prophecies of the Old Testament and why um, it only made sense, according to the prophecies, that it was a virgin, not just a young woman. Uh, it was a unique birth, and that was a sign in particular. But the born under the law part, and really what born under the law simply means, is that um, he was made under the law. The laws of man, the, or excuse me, the laws of God, but the laws of nature as well, and the laws of, of man. He interjected himself, God the Son, into our world. He's made under the law. And when Mary gave birth to this child, he was no ordinary child. Although, to everybody probably present, he would have looked like a very, very much a normal baby boy in that way. Uh, contrary to what the you know, artists over the centuries have depicted, he did not probably have a halo around him. Uh, nor was there a halo around Mary or Joseph or anybody else or the shepherds. Uh, it was probably a very obscure event and nobody noticed that night except for just a select few, including those shepherds that were given that instruction that Jesus or that the Christ was now born in the city of Bethlehem. And the angel announced that to them. Uh, but I say that because it really was no ordinary birth in spite of it appearing very ordinary. And the reason being is that Jesus had entered into the world and God the Son had entered into the world in the same. The phrase made under the law carries the idea of being subject to the law. It means that the Son of God was subject to the same law as we are. Both divine law, he gave up the use of his divine perfections to the will of the Father. And so he had to He had to go in obedience in those ways. He also subjected he who was the one who formed the worlds and by him all things consist, the Bible says, entered into creation and now was under the laws of creation. Jesus was subject to the law of gravity. He was subject to uh, various things. Whatever you are, he is. You think about it and had been. Now, could those things be suspended in accordance with the will of the father yes at times there are times we'll look at them um, where 
he, he could control the weather. I cannot control the weather. I'd love to control the weather because I wouldn't want to shovel the rest of the winter, okay? Uh, but that's not the reality. And nobody can control the weather, really. And I, I think it's futile to try to stop any climate change and other things like that because it's not really something that we control. God controls that. And Jesus subjected himself to the weather. Think about that. And he subjected himself to um, the laws of man. As we looked at last week, um, he came into a world in a time when you had the Romans in control. And it was a unique time in human history. It had become, uh, the Romans instituted a common language, which was actually the Greek language and then Latin as well. But it was a time when much of that part of the world that Christ enters into had a common language where the word of God could be carried to those people underneath the umbrella of Rome. He put himself under that same umbrella. He put himself in the same situation in a time where I wouldn't have chosen that time to come into the world. I would have chosen in more modern times maybe. Maybe not. But anyways, God is the one who perfectly puts that in the fullness of time, right? Born under the law. All that is what that means, and it's a, a simple phrase, but it, uh, you understand that he came into the same world that you're subject to as well in that. And it's important as we, we look at this um, to understand that he, his birth was no ordinary, or he was no ordinary child in that way. We know that from the account of the Gospels, where like in Luke's Gospel here, Luke says, in recording what the angel said, He shall be great, he shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. So he was in the lineage of David in the legal line and the bloodline, one through Joseph, his stepfather essentially, but his legal father on earth, and Mary, the bloodline, both go back to David, by the way. So he's he's fulfilled that prophecy. But here it says he's the son of the highest and again i've said the word son when you come to that in scripture uh, referring to in the the son of god in that way um, you have to understand that it's a term uh, that denotes relationship Uh, if i said and i've said this before but i have two sons all right ben and sam and they did not exist back in 1969 when i was born just so you know and I had a, an existence that started, you know, 1969. My parents got married January 25th, and I came October 25th, all right? Nine months to the day. My mother, my grandmother said, that's a good thing, that it wasn't early. <laughs> that's what she told my dad. But uh, I say that because we come into this world through what we call procreation, right? I won't go into the details of that. You all have that understanding, uh, probably. But uh, I, what I go with in this, that Jesus the as son never had a beginning he was always the eternal son because the bible calls him that uh, eternal and there is an eternal father all right those words over and over again in scripture appear and just think logically here you cannot have an eternal father in other words he's always been a father without an eternal son also And by very nature of definition, eternal means he always existed and always will. He's God. Just by that definition. But he was different. 
Luke one thirty five. the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Different child. See, we were not born holy. Now there are some that teach that, that we are born free of sin and then we learn how to sin later and stuff like that and um, like for instance islam believes that and that you're not actually born pure and then later become a sinner uh, some believe and teach that as well uh, in christianity but the bible doesn't teach that the bible teaches that we were created and we were shaped in iniquity from our mother's womb we are not holy at our birth but jesus was and he's called the Holy One. Actually, that Holy One. In other words, not one of many, but only one. He's called the Son of God. The Apostle John, of course, he writes of Jesus and he talks about him as the Word, the Logos, the one who was there in the beginning and all things were created by him and for him, and all that. And he identifies the word who became flesh and dwelt among us the eternal communication of god wrapped up in the son i'm so thankful well we get into this and this morning we were in philippians 2 verse 5 to 8 there and i'm just going to read that again to to just leave it there with you but here it talks about uh again the the fact that jesus or the son who entered into our world under the law, he did so fully as God, fully as man. And Paul writes here, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God. And the word for form in the Greek means the exact replication. In other words, he was God. All right? wasn't just an, like he appeared like a God. That would make sense in a Greek world where they had a pantheon of different gods that were all flawed and they were just glorified men and women, some with great, great problems. But he was different. He was God. He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And the reason he did not consider it, because he was equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant or a slave. And coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And again, the important part of that is this, that he was fully God, yet fully human. And so that's kind of what I want to look at in our time. We don't have a lot of time here to go into it. But the reality that that Jesus, as he was conceived in the virgin's womb was in the human side of things like you and me except without sin for example and i will look at a few things he had a body all right obviously we've been talking about his body uh, being born of a woman we know that because for instance jesus uh, in matthew chapter 20 says many verses i could look at but we find out remember when the woman comes in and pours oil on jesus she does so prior to the crucifixion and she does so as a memorial to his death he hadn't died yet but she pours body not on some ghostly image that looked like they were flesh and blood but actually a body 
It says, for in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Jesus was substance. He actually could, you could reach out and feel him and touch him. As Thomas did later when Jesus, after the resurrection, said, feel the nail holes, right? The nail prints and the, the put your hand in my side where he had been pierced. And he was flesh and bone. He was, he also, by the way, not only had a body, but he had a soul. He had a soul. See, we're a three-part being, body, soul, and spirit. Jesus had a body, he had a soul. The Bible says here uh, in Matthew 26, 38, it says, And then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He was getting ready and there praying in the garden. His impending death was right on the horizon. And he knew in the matter of less than a day he would be dead on a cross. You know, if someone came to you tonight and said you have less than 24 hours to live, how would you feel? Would that disturb your body or your soul? I mean, would that disturb you? Probably. Disturb me. Sometimes we're, it's a good thing we don't know the hour when we're going to die. But nevertheless, it would disturb us. And the word for soul, sometimes in the Bible you've got to differentiate because soul and spirit are used interchangeably. But the Greek words are actually different when they define what the soul is and what the spirit is. And we'll get to the spirit here in a moment. But the word for soul in the Greek is psyche. Now, we use that all the time, right? If you're, you're the psychology of you, all right, your psychological uh, behavior, those kind of things, that's you. That's what goes on in here, right? In your brain, in your body, right? That produces that, the feelings and emotions and all that. And here, the writer in the Gospels here uses a very precise word to define the soul, the psyche. And that is that part when you go and look in a mirror and you say, that's me, you know that's you it's not just material you're looking at as a reflection but there's a person behind it the soul it's what you are all right when you close your eyes and imagine yourself or whatever else or act out things on emotion and jesus was a man that was wrapped up in emotion like all of us Uh, not led necessarily by his emotions but he knew what it was like to be sorrowful he knew what it was like to be fearful of his death impending death when the bible describes that he was in the garden in agony it was the word agony means great distress ever thought about jesus here's the one who was there in the beginning when creation was even started he was already there he's god the son and yet he's he's distressed over his death yes because he was fully man he knows what it's like to face those kind of things he was also had a spirit. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now, the Greek word that is used there is the word pneuma. It's where we get the idea of air, right? Pneuma, pneumatic drill is a drill that is powered by air, right? Uh, but it's the idea of a non-material part of us that is released at death and doesn't necessarily it now is residing within you and you are a spiritual being 
And that's what defines man different than the rest of all of creation. Because we have a spirit. When the book of Genesis says that God created man and formed him out of the dust, um, which is in perfect keeping with what science tells us, because we're just matter that's made up of the same stuff that we're right standing on and sitting on and everything else. We're just the elements of the earth, mostly carbon. And yet it's all come together in this complex being. God put that together. And he did that with all kinds of things in creation that are alive, right? You know, animals of all sorts, some very intelligent animals and all that. But the difference between what animals as such have and what we have is we have a spirit. And that spirit is part that in its pre-fallen stage, before Adam and Eve sinned, worshipped God. After they sinned, it worshipped everything but God. Worshipped creation, it worshipped each other idolized something whatever or took a little bit of god took a little bit of paganism whatever you know what i mean mix it all together but we are unique in that we desire to worship something and anthropologists will say that as well even secular anthropologists will say mankind is different because he's always wanting to worship something even those that claim to be atheists which we're more and more in a world in the west here of atheists still exercise their spirit and mostly worshiping themselves and the material but we're created that way and jesus had a spirit and when he died his spirit was released and his soul also being released at the moment of death you don't cease to exist by the way when you die you will be more alive in your understanding of things probably than ever before at the moment of death The body holds us back in so many ways, probably. And I'm saying probably because I don't really know all the things. I just have, we have little clues here and there in the Bible. Anyways, I better move on here. We find out that Jesus had body, soul, and spirit. We we know, matter of fact, that he looked like a man. Now, that would be obvious if he had a body, right? He looked like a man. That's when Jesus was here on earth. People saw him as someone who looked like a man. He actually looked like a Jewish man. John chapter 4, because he was Jewish, by the way. John chapter 4, the woman at the well of Samaria. The woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus didn't tell her he was a Jew. She comes up to get water, and there's Jesus. He's tired. He's sitting there. He wants a drink. And she says, you're Jewish. Wow. John eight fifty seven. The Jews understood that he was a real man. Here he is in front of the Pharisees and the scribes. And they said, uh, this is after Jesus, well, he, before he says, before Abraham was, I am. That really defined his deity when he said that. In John eight fifty seven, it says, Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? He looked like a man younger than 50. He was most likely in his early 30s. So think about that. He appeared as a man. John chapter 20, verse 15. We have... Mary Magdalene, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Look what it says. She, supposing him to be the gardener, 
here he is, resurrection day, and even those that were closest to him weren't really looking for him to be raised. <laughs> and in the, in the morning hour, here he is, standing there, and she thinks he's the gardener. Again, didn't have a halo around him, probably. Uh, Hebrews 2.14 says this, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. You see, the importance of the virgin conception and the hypostatic union that here is the divine and the human dwelling in one individual, Jesus Christ, had to happen. Because if he didn't take on flesh and blood, he could not save us. See, only, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. See, the only payment for sin is death. Either your death or someone else's. In this case, his. And he only could die if he was human. Dying. Think about that. Jesus also had to grow in this world. After he was born, he was born as a baby. He didn't instantly become a man. Think about that in a sense. Having to go from the glories of eternity where you have all the divine perfections at your will and you give up those will to that will to the Father and now you become a baby. Hmm. Someone has to change your diaper. Someone has to, to feed you. He who made all things has to be fed. He had to grow. He had to go to school. Oh boy. See these kids back here. You like school? Eh, I know. No kid really loves school. Well, maybe some. There's strange ones every now and again. But school takes work. It means you got to homework and you got to sit down and do stuff and learn things and sometimes things you think you already know and then it's, life is filled with schooling. Jesus had to go to school. We don't know a lot about his childhood because really the Bible doesn't say much. We, we have it summed up with Luke chapter 2 verse 52 and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. In other words, he grew up. He had to do that. That's important. He had to ask questions. Luke chapter 2 verse 46. Now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. He's 12 years old, and he's asking them questions. Do you have anybody that ever asked you any questions? Do you ever ask any questions? I hope so. Jesus had to do that. He knew what it was like to go and to pray. Mark 1.35 He went out and departed to a solitary place and there he prayed. Why would God have to pray? Well, God in the flesh did. He had to pray because not only to teach us to pray, 
But he prayed that he in the flesh would be strengthened. You find out later on when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, before the crucifixion, and the word Gethsemane means place of the olive press, and a very place where olives were squeezed and pressed, Jesus would find himself in a garden alone at night being pressed as the impending death and the wrath of God for sin would be placed upon him. And he felt that. And the Bible says an angel came and strengthened him. Hmm. He knew what it was like to be tempted. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Here in this case, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, third member of the Trinity. You have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit, as Jesus again, as at this time, had given up the use of his perfections, his divine qualities, to the will of the Father, the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted. Now, the Holy Spirit does not lead you to be tempted. I just have to say that. Um, we are tempted without the use of God tempting us in that way. He doesn't tempt us to sin. But Jesus was tempted in that it would display who he really was. He's the real deal. When the fire comes to him in the temptation form, he's purified, and or he's not purified. There was nothing needed to be purified. It, it reveals that he indeed was truly God in the flesh. I'm not, but he is. In the very same way he resisted the devil is the same way I can. I mentioned that this morning, that we have the word of God. He speaks the word of God every single time. I can't perform miracles. I can't suspend laws of nature. I can't do it, but I can quote the Bible. So pretty, pretty good tool in your toolbox, isn't it? He got hungry. Not only there in that account where after 40 days it says he was hungry, but how about Matthew 21, 18? Now in the morning as he returned to the city, he was hungry. I, I like that about Jesus. I get hungry in the morning. Yeah. Sometimes you get hungry at night. You get hungry in the afternoon. Right, we get hungry. God got hungry. God in the flesh. He got thirsty. John 19, 28. Last phrase there. I thirst. Get thirsty. He got tired. There he is, the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Now Jacob's well was there, Jesus therefore being wearied from his journey. He just walked a great distance. It's now the noon hour. That's the sixth hour in the Jewish time uh, that they used. And here it is, high noon. He's sitting by a well. He's tired. I get tired sometimes in the middle of the day, after a busy day. I'm glad that he's like that. He slept. Matthew 8, 24. Suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered and with the waves, but he was asleep. Wow. Love that. <laughs> Jesus had to sleep. And I mentioned that this morning. The Bible talks of the Lord, he who sleeps, or who neither sleeps nor slumbers. God is like that. But God in the flesh had to. He loved. 
Matthew 9, verse 36, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them. Greek word, big one. I won't even try to pronounce it. Too much spit comes out, I think. But anyways, it means having affection in the inward parts. You know when you are moved with compassion and it's within, your heart just, wow. You have, your heart breaks for someone or some situation. In this case, it was the multitude. Jesus had that kind of heart of compassion. It wasn't just an outward action, it was an inward action. Only God in the flesh could have that, by the way. He was grieved and angry. Mark 3, 5, And when he had looked around at them with anger, and the word in the Greek is wrath, Jesus was angry. And being grieved, that means he was greatly disturbed in his heart over what he was seeing. Because their hearts were hard. By the way, I'm glad he was merciful to them. The Bible says in Psalm chapter 2, Kiss the son lest he be angry. And those who were there had such hard hearts, they did not want to receive the one who was in their midst. And many would reject him later, as John 1.11 says, He came unto his own, his own received him not. Think about that. He could have destroyed him just like that in his anger. And he would have been right to do so. He could have destroyed me in his anger. He could have snuffed me out before I ever took a breath in this world. And I, I would have, it would have been perfectly justifiable because I was a sinner at war with God. But no, he was moved with compassion. And he loved me with an everlasting love. And he loves you with an everlasting love. He wept. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. There he is looking at Jerusalem and weeping over that great city. Which in just the span of less than a generation would be toppled in ruin. And that great temple that he was looking down on would be destroyed and has never been rebuilt since then. Today it's still the most hotly contested piece of real estate in all the world. The Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Jesus saw it all. And he said, Jerusalem, there won't be one stone that will remain on another. He wept over it because they had rejected him. Though there were some that received, right? As many as received him, to them he gave, they become the sons of God, right? As in the children of God. Luke 10.21, I don't know what I put it in there for, I'm looking at it now, oh, he experienced joy. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in his spirit, joyful. I, uh, I really think our imagination probably has been uh, darkened somewhat in that religion has done that. We often kind of understand and we think, as I've said before, that Jesus and his disciples always went around with somber faces and just sour, you know, the, the sour look on your face. I'm a believer, you know. No, they were happy, joyful at times. I'm sure there were times they wept as well, as we know. We already read those verses. But Jesus would smile and joy and laughter and singing. 
Well, maybe he even danced a little bit. I don't know. Wow. He's Jesus. He can do what he wants. I'll tell you what. I think we, we try to put him in a box, and we are so mistaken. Here he groaned in his spirit, it says, in John 11. That's at the death of Lazarus. He comes there and his heart is broken also over his friend Lazarus' death. And there he raises Lazarus back from uh, the dead. And i got to wrap up here. i only got a couple minutes. but Luke chapter 22 verse 14 uh, actually, that's not the right text. That's too many. <laughs> I'm trying to find out what I, where did I go with that? 2244 is what I want. Let me go back up here. Way off on that. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Only, only somebody who possessed blood flowing through their veins could actually have... Uh, their capillaries burst in this case uh, under great agony and and actually mingled with your sweat it would appear as though sweat and blood was dropping to the ground in that and it shows again that he was indeed one who would suffer peter says that therefore since christ suffered for us and he throws in this phrase in the flesh that was important because by the time the uh, middle of the first century uh, of, of this you know we're talking about 30 years after Christ when Peter is writing and we have also later John writing and all that there were these groups of people called Gnostics they had come on the scene and there were different camps of Gnosticism but one of them was this that God could not put on flesh and he certainly could not be crucified that would be shameful so therefore God just manifested something that looked like flesh and they actually taught and denied the flesh. In doing so, they also taught and denied the virgin conception. And there was a heresy that had come in early. And when Peter writes his epistle, he makes sure that they understand. Here's one that had walked with Jesus and hand, had touched him and had been with him. And says he is in the flesh. And when he suffered, he was in the flesh. It wasn't just an image of someone in the flesh. He was actually in the flesh. Arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And he's referring to their preparing people uh, in, for suffering. And then he, had, he could bleed. I've already said that. But when they pierced his side in John's gospel, it says that immediately blood and water came out. And physiologically, that would make sense. The, his heart had stopped. The blood had already stopped moving through his body. And the liquid part of the blood had begun to separate and would have filled the uh, outer sac of the heart. And when it was pierced, water would have come out followed by blood. And that is one of the clearest indications that he was actually dead. And then he was buried. And Jesus cried out uh, again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. In other words, he died and then it says, when Joseph had taken, as Joseph of Arimathea had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. 
By the way, that was in keeping with the law, um, in a sense, because the Jews believed, and it was taught, actually it's taught in the Torah, the books of Moses, that the rock uh, would not become impure if something touched it. So if you find stone vessels mentioned in Scripture, they were vessels that would not become ceremonially unclean when something was put in them that was unclean or touched them. And it's interesting, the detail here, where you have a new tomb, and it was hewn directly out of the rock. To the Jews, that was important, because whatever was put in there wasn't corrupted. And the stone itself wasn't corrupted. And Jesus didn't see corruption anyways, because he was raised again the third day. He's holy, harmless, undefiled, born of a woman under the law. All that wrapped up in that. We'll quit there next time, which next week there's no Sunday evening service, so I'll have to bring this after Christmas talking about the same theme. But I want to look at the divinity of Christ and why that's important as well. Lord, again, we commit this study to you. We thank you, O God. And and in the whole process of this, we've gone down in rapid succession on these verses. And maybe, Lord, there's just one or two things that stand out to us. But I pray even tonight as we go from this place, we'd think on these things. Thank you that in every way you were tempted like we are and yet without sin. Thank you that we have such a priest, a high priest for us that intercedes even now for us and is with us. And we would just say, Emmanuel, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.